It's Zach Lichichi. I'm so popular, and I'm here with a very special guest. Who are you? Uh, hi, I am Christian, or you might know me from Twitter as Lexapro. Um, what are you doing, Christian? Um, I am doing grad school in chemical engineering by day and screaming into the void by night. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and why do you follow me? Um, well, you were part of kind of like the Twink Revolution online extended universe. I think we actually yes. met on one of their uh, Zoom calls a while back. And I don't know, I was really intrigued by um, a lot of what you're doing with your drag and with the podcast in terms of, I don't know, kind of like acknowledging that we're living in a time that is very much characterized by the death of culture and you're preserving the stuff that influences you. Um, and I think that's really cool and exciting, and I like to see it. Uh, thank you. You are now officially uh, a part of the I'm So Popular universe, and I'm going to frame your portrait for that beautiful <laughs> description of the show. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm i really excited to talk to you today because I remember first chatting with you on the Zoom calls and stuff and finding that you have a really great eye for literature and culture and beauty uh, along with living this double life as a person who studies science, which I know literally nothing about. <laughs> <laughs> and you live in Munchen, one of my favorite places in the world. Yeah, no, I'm like you in that I have abandoned um, our home of the United States in search of greener pastures. Yes. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I think a lot of my interest in aesthetics and culture and things like that is motivated by the fact that so much of my day is spent having to engage with uh, different kinds of topics that are enriching, but not in the way that, I don't know, answers the fundamental questions of like what it means to be human, which I think are much more important. <laughs> so science yeah. is dumb. Literature, culture is very cool. <laughs> But I feel like in its own way, science absolutely is answering the same kind of questions. It just is in a less emotional way, perhaps. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, in a lot of my humanities courses and like bachelors, right, the professors would talk about how science is great because in a way it does access that through its ability to improve the quality of human life, but it lacks in a lot of ways of being able to put that into a bigger context, right? So it can explain human life, it can increase the quality of it, but you really need kind of the humanities to to put that into a, a bigger context. And the image of going into all of these like universal questions while being surrounded by like the beautiful architecture in Germany is just so romantic to me. Exactly, exactly. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here doing a day job barking at children, and I'm doing it in a city that has been completely leveled by World War II, so all of the architecture is just, like, 90s nightmare disaster that never stepped up because the bubble popped and they haven't touched anything in, like, 30 years. I mean, but you've, so you've been to Munich as well, right? So you know Twice, that, like, yeah. yeah. 
this place was also very much leveled by war and destruction. They just decided to sort of, I guess, retcon the architecture back into, you know, traditional European style with a lot of the rebuilding. But you do have a lot of the buildings that are very much like, okay, we needed to get this done. We needed to build stuff, not as architecture. <laughs> and then also, um, you know, more of like that 1960s style uh, soulless architecture, which is also a defining feature, but somehow also inspirational. Yeah. Munich is a gorgeous city. I, uh, I've been twice and I went when I was really young uh, with my grandfather and then I went for his funeral in this uh, enormous cathedral. It was like the first Catholic service I'd been to in my entire life. It shocked me when I was 12. Yeah. Yeah. Catholic, uh, all Catholic things, weddings, funerals, whatever, are quite shocking. I was raised as like a non-denominational Protestant. And I remember going to my first Catholic wedding and it was a traumatic experience. (laughs) It's like the most intense drama and the highest stakes for literally everything they do. But I don't know, like, as a gay person, I have, like, a huge appreciation for, like, pageantry, camp, ritual, those kind of things. So I do have um, a big appreciation and a big love for, like, that side of Catholicism. Well, I started reading the Bible this year because I was interested in, like, trying to figure out my uh, Catholic roots. And I watched this great movie called Love Exposure uh, a few months ago where they read from Corinthians. And I thought it was the most poetic and beautiful passage of writing I had heard in eternity. And uh, I find, like, Christianity and Catholicism to be very, like, gay in a lot of, like, the grandiose, like, sentiments it has. So I completely agree. Very nice. And speaking of all of these Western traditions and all of these uh, old cultures, uh, we're going to talk about beauty today and how that's manifested in uh, culture. And I wanted to bring you on to talk about this because I feel like you have a really good eye for uh, beautiful gay culture as well as um, kind of reconciling with the dirt and disgust of it, like in pornography, which we're going to be discussing at length today. And... It's rare to find people who can have kind of an aesthetic eye over the more disgusting dregs of homosexuality. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that it's a lot of the, I don't know, a lot of the disgusting dregs of homosexuality are what influences the aesthetics. And I think it's important to look at both aspects of it. So I'm super excited to get into it with you today. Yes. Um, I'm kind of curious about how you became a dirty slut like were you always or did it just like come to you one day like a flash out of the blue um I don't know I think obviously my ideas towards what sex should be like um have changed as I've gotten older right so I mean I I grew up Mm -hmm. in a Christian household in a relatively conservative part of California um And so, you know, kind of the ideas that you have about sex and sexuality are very much that it's always coming from or informed by an idea of love, right? And then having to reconcile or even procreation as well when talking about religion. But when you realize that you're gay and suddenly the framework in which sex exists changes, your ideas about what sex should look like start to change as well, right? And then as you you know, there was no real gay media for us growing up, right, in terms of like, oh, depicting gay relationships in popular culture, whatever, right? 
Um, so really the- yeah, It's just glee. Yeah, exactly. And so the only real avenue that you have into gay sexuality is gleaned through literature or pornography or, or whatever, right? Um, right? And so, yeah, my, I, I guess I started out much more vanilla in my taste. And then as I've gotten older, I've sort of broadened my horizons when it comes to um, sex and desire and things like that. Yeah, me too. I remember in high school, I was uh, very like, against uh, flaming homosexuality. I remember kind of, like, under my dad's influence that I found, like, a lot of, uh, like, queenie gays. I thought drag queens were, like, repulsive. I uh, hated all of it. But then once I got into college and uh, started actually interacting with men seriously for the first time, I started recognizing all of these, like, bizarre sublimities. And it's been, like, a spiral into male worship from then. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but, I mean, what 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 better thing, honestly, in terms of being able to appreciate aesthetics and male beauty, like than to be gay? You know what I mean? Like, it oh really yeah, is the, the perfect platform to get to explore that. There's a great Mishima quote. He's like, women can't see male beauty. Like, they can find a man attractive, but they can't see him as beautiful. And I honestly do think that like straight men and gay men are the only ones who have the power to actually witness male beauty in its entirety. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think it's speaking specifically of straight men within that context, I think it's very interesting looking at that idea within the confines of like right-wing bodybuilder Twitter, right? You have all of these like extremely conservative straight men who spend their entire day online just like proverbially sucking each other off over like who gets the best muscles at the gym. It's like very, very interesting. Um, and I yeah, think- I find them very endearing too. Like the right wing bodybuilders and every, I th- good for them. Honestly, yeah, yeah, no, I love it. I love it. There's a lot of like a liberal distaste for beautiful men and for ideas of masculinity and strength, and I can recognize where a lot of it comes from in like the feminist movement and how some of it is. Uh, work that they thought was essential but it has created like this genre of uh men more recently that i find very unappealing but coming to japan where feminism never happened <laughs> like <laughs> we're, we're out here it did not happen it's like the men here are like still in that cultural role and uh it was shocking to me it was like getting fried electrically by all of this overwhelming male beauty on arrival here yeah yeah no i mean i think it's it's interesting too and how much that's permeated just like male attitudes as well right so they talk about this on red Mm -hmm. scare all the time it's like if you need someone to hang shelves in your apartment or fix your car you don't call your straight boyfriend you call your gay best friend right and Mm -hmm. like that's something that's definitely been a defining feature um of my existence here like whenever my female friends have uh problems right and they can't call their dads to come fix it uh they call me to come and do whatever work needs to be done around their apartment etc right so it, it is nice to sort of see as straight men i think become more feminized and masculinity is being stripped away from them. It is nice to see gay men sort of stepping up and, and filling that void as much as possible. Yeah. I'll take anyone, you know, doing the work, (laughs) preserving masculinity, (laughs) doing the physical labor. (laughs) 
literal physical labor. It does not matter to me if it's a faggot doing it or a heterosexual. I just need somebody to be doing it. And uh, gays have always been able to wear, like, the costume and put on the drag of uh, masculinity. And it's in a very interesting form where we see, like, the gay men at the gym and, like, the beautiful human that they aim to turn into. Yes, no, like, one of one of the things that I want to do when I'm not um, writing my master's thesis for various term papers, I really, really want to write an essay analyzing the archetypes of men at the gym because mm-hmm. you you really see this, this Pollyan idea that masculinity has now shifted to the gays when you go to the gym. Because gay men are at the gym either to A, like cruise for dick or ass, or B, to actually work on themselves for aesthetic beauty or health or whatever, right? Straight men are literally there to jerk themselves off. Like they're the ones who are standing in front of the mirrors like flexing, oh yeah, look at me, like I'm so fucking big, like all of that stuff, right? Um, And I think it's so interesting to examine the fragility uh, and vanity of straight men within that context compared to gay men at the gym. I think it's one of the most fascinating things that we can do in modern, like in modern society. I agree. And I love, I love male performance at the gym. Like I used to go running, like the gayest kind of exercise you can do is like going to jog on a treadmill, but going that's to the gym just to do cardio. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's like peak, peak behavior. <laughs> Yeah, like six sit-ups and then like 25 minutes on the elliptical and you're good to go, baby. And uh, I was so obsessed and like fascinated by like the narratives of all these men running around and like the weight room going on. It's like this spectacle of masculinity in its own way. And it's so like rehearsed and put on Mm -hmm. that it turns into this amazing drag show. It's like a lip sync, basically. Yeah, no, it's it's what... RuPaul's Drag Race wishes it could be. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up um, Paulia because we're going to kind of use some of her thinking as like the framework into our survey into beauty. And uh, she has a beautiful um, archetype that she describes in Sexual Persona, which is that of the beautiful boy. Yes. And she kind of frames it as this image um, largely from like Grecian times of a beautiful male figure and it's a uh, specific qualities yeah yeah no I, I i think it's very very interesting right because she she makes the point of saying that it's often been imitated in other cultural movements but never completely replicated right um right. and yeah i think it's it's very interesting especially looking at pornography the way that um it kind of informs, before I even read Polly, because I hadn't read Polly until probably, I don't know, a year and a half ago. But right. her describing this archetype of the beautiful boy, I found was always the thing that I was desiring when I was looking at pornography. It was always the type of men that I was attracted to in a pornographic setting, um, yeah. which is obviously very different than the things that you're attracted to in uh, a partner in reality, right? Which I think is also very interesting. Um, but yeah, like, do you have any, do you have any quotes that you want? Yeah, she she describes the beautiful boy in a lot of different ways. Like, one of the most important characteristics is that it's like the downward gaze, like this lack of acknowledgement of the other or the partner, 
And it's this uh, sort of like narcissistic reality that they can portray just in their glance. And I thought that when I first read Sexual Persona last year, I thought that was like the most frighteningly accurate description of like what I find beautiful in men. Like yes. <laughs> I remember in my stupid creative writing courses in college, like when I was writing about men, I would always like just des- like describe them as like, oh, the unaware or like the unintentional like beauty and being like the the best facet of a of an attractive man. And when she identified that in sexual persona, I like screamed. It's so accurate. No, for sure, right? And it's it's interesting that that's been something that's existed for so long, right? And especially when you look at it in the context of because again, this this idea of the beautiful boy is typically post-pubescent but still adolescent, right? And it's it's the context of his attractiveness within the gaze of society or or older people as well, right? So mm-hmm. it's almost kind of. Um, like Jeffrey Dahmer-esque and this idea that you have like the beautiful, unaware male himbo. Um, yeah. <laughs> which I think is, is quite interesting, right? And even getting into when she describes the tendency in Grecian sculpture um, to always depict the beautiful boy with small genitalia because the, the focus is, right, that it, it's, the, it's the pleasure of the other person that's important. It's not the pleasure of the beautiful boy themselves that's significant. I thought that was also very interesting. Yeah, fascinating. And she channels all of these descriptions to kind of suggest that, like, representing the beautiful boy in this version of masculinity is kind of like a way to stave off death, basically. She yeah. writes that the beautiful boy represents a hopeless attempt to separate imagination from death and decay. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think we experience this in gay life all of the time, right? Like, uh, you know, when you're, when you're gay, once you turn 30, you're basically ancient, right? And we, we've all had the experiences of, like, the 40, 50, 60 somethings on Grindr doing whatever they can to, to get a hold of a, a taste of that, of that youth, right? As, as expressed mm-hmm. through, you know, this, this idea of the beautiful boy. Yeah, and decay is something that I think gays are exceptionally affiliated with. I mean, like from the HIV AIDS crisis, you know, yeah. a lot of our ideas about sex are like immediately like linked with death and of destruction, and we are all kind of in our own private battles trying to stave off the collapse of our youth. And it's, I think, one of the leading gay psychoses that we carry. For sure, right? And I, th- I think that, again, kind of getting back to how our, our relationship with sex as gay people, right? Because up until, you know, very recently, the idea of having children was never something that was associated. I mean, it's still not technically associated with sex now for gay people right Mm -hmm. but this this idea of the white picket fence the lifelong partnership the raising children who will one day care for you when you're old right yeah the chasten Buttigieg moment yeah exactly um none of these things existed for us until very very recently and so i think that that also kind of informs um the desire for youth and beauty in in our sexual relationships and it's something that doesn't really go away as we get older exactly and uh one of the ways that we kind of uh, stave off this desire is by crystallizing it in pornography Absolutely. and i'm so excited to talk about this because i find that gay pornography is like in terms of its aesthetic conventions very 
bizarre. Like, it has its own entertainment universe and all of its own private rules. For and sure. I was horrified of gay porn, like, when I was, like, just beginning to, like, investigate in middle school. Mm-hmm. Because it is really extreme a lot of the time. Like, the idea of hardcore is, like, very much a gay, gay term. And I would only, like look at still images because I was too horrified by, like, the action until much later. Yeah, yeah. So when I was first um, coming to terms with my sexuality, right, I would, I went through, I think, the phase that a lot of gay people go through, which is um, when you're watching straight porn, but you're specifically focusing on the male model, right, and you're somehow convincing yourself that you're straight or whatever, or that you're bisexual, all of these things until you really come to terms with uh, the fact that no, you're interested in the man and basically only the man. And one of the things that I think is very interesting is there actually is certain porn production companies which cater to gay men, but actually feature um, only like heterosexual porn, which I thought was also very interesting. What's that one called? It's, it's called, called like, Hot, Hot Guys Fuck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and in Japan, the there's a really popular like gay porn distributor called a uh, Hunk Ch, and mm. they do a lot of those videos as well. And um, I guess like a lot of gay men are kind of interested in like seeing the heterosexual man in the element or something, and that kind of inspires that that version of porn. For sure. Yeah. I mean, there's. Um... Yeah, there's a certain element of like of masculinity, I guess, in in that idea of heterosexual sex that is oftentimes appealing to to gay men. Right, and one of the interesting things I think about gay porn is that in straight porn, it's very much about like insertion into the <laughs> Jesus Christ insertion. <laughs> it's about it's about insertion of like yourself onto one of the figures, yes. and that's why the man is often like so scarcely featured and it's like only kind of suggested in in his presence so often and it's more about like the um action being taken on the woman and being able to imagine yourself as that figure but gay porn because it's too often at least two male figures you are kind of given like an option to project yourself onto either and i think it kind of frays the entire pornography experience yeah absolutely and i think um even beyond that right gay porn is interesting because again gay sexuality in a lot of ways is much more adventurous than straight sexuality right so when you look at the comparison between um studio porn productions amateur porn productions and uh only fans right um you also have this idea of being a voyeur as well, right? So I think a lot of I think a lot of amateur porn is informed by the desire to be uh, simply just an onlooker, right? A, a passive viewer in what's happening, as well as this idea of yes, more accessible um, porn that's based in reality, the, the fantasy of the reality. Yeah, I think that the voyeur is a major element in the gay pornographic experience, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons that a lot of people immediately characterize porn outside of uh, art and immediately look at it as like some unhealthy habit and of course like pornography can be damaging and can lead to 
bizarre mental gymnastics of you trying to feature yourself in a narrative that doesn't exist. But at the same time, I, I think it has so much, like, fascinating and idiosyncratic approaches to depicting beauty that I see in almost no other art form. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's one of the, the key things, right? And you have, at least in terms of studio productions, right? You have so many different companies that are producing all of these films, right? And if you, if you really look at them, they're all selling a different vision of beauty, a different fantasy um, to the viewer. And I, I think that's very, very interesting to look at in terms of porn as, a, as an art form. Yeah, so we can talk about some of these studios. I think that one of the ones that most people will have been exposed to is men.com. Oh, God, <laughs> the Netflix of porn. <laughs> then, yeah, <laughs> literally. I described it as like banner porn because this is like what you see when you're on Pornhub and you have that five second ad before what you actually watch starts and it's men.com. It's that like... Uh, very Netflix is a perfect way to describe it. Yeah, no, I, I the way I look at it is they have a really big budget, but they're making a lot of stuff that no one really wants to watch, but they're watching it simply because it's there. Um, it's very campy. It's very overacted. Um, the way I like to envision it is like if it was a challenge to make a porno on like a, an episode of RuPaul's Drag Race, like if that was the maxi challenge. <laughs> it's giving the same level of acting like none of the men who are like forced to embarrass themselves in these scenes are like any oscar contenders for sure no like when we were when we were discussing the episode right like you sent some we we, like exchanged some some video links for a lot of the studios right and the particular sample that we that you chose for men.com was hilarious right it's like the the plumber coming in to fix the pipes and like somewhere in the video, there's this scene where the camera's underneath the sink and the actor is like pretending to screw something <laughs> in with a screw. Like the, the whole depiction of reality is like so alienating and dissociative. And it's like one of those things where, yes, the models, um, muscular, beautiful, whatever, right? Like all of these, all of these signifiers of male beauty but it is almost squandered or wasted by this desire to place a plot or a narrative on top of the production, right? It, it takes away yeah. from it. It's one of those, it's like if you're watching a film from men.com, you know you need to skip like 15 minutes in to avoid having to see any of the ridiculous overacting, unless you're looking for a bit of comedy in your in your pornography. In which case, <laughs> start from the beginning. I s- I suppose, like, the reason that they include the the bizarre scripting is merely as a way to try and suggest a greater fantasy, or it's like, oh, like, you can imagine this, like, happening to you. But because, like you said, it's so overwritten and so fake, and there's no screwdriver in his hand, it completely disassociates from reality and calls, like, more attention to it uh, being pornography and not reality. So in trying to make itself more real, it actually is, like, going further into the uncanny no and like when i was yeah it's like definitely the the peak of the un- the, the the bottom of the uncanny valley um <laughs> but when i was thinking about this idea of, of what makes a porn successful or unsuccessful right like especially when you're trying to sell a fantasy i think it's much more effective to keep the dialogue 
kind of limited and maybe just choose a setting, right? It's, it's enough to set it in a locker room and not have this elaborate 15 long, 15 minute long discussion with your wrestling coach. Um, because that really gives you the freedom as a viewer to project your own fantasies onto what is happening, right? And yeah. I think that most of the time, what you're envisioning in your head is going to be better than any story they're going to be selling you. I think that's kind of the key to doing this role-playing or specific situational fantasy in an effective way. Um, yeah, and I think men.com kind of really overshoots the boat um, in that respect. It's very dissociative yeah. and alienating. It's very dissociative, and I think it's kind of interesting how the the need for this narrative and to write the script results in like completely breaking from being able to insert yourself like you suggested and then it also is creating like the voyeuristic element so it's almost like inspiring that in trying to run away from it so men.com flop and and tying it back to to polio right like Mm -hmm. getting into this key quality of the beautiful boy archetype of, of being this sort of demure downward gazed man like it it really misses the boat in that respect because when you have someone who embodies the the beautiful boy archetype you are able to project your fantasies of who they are right it's like the exciting part of grinder or tinder is like looking at someone's pictures and trying to decide who they might be based on what you want when they work too um aggressively to invoke a character or a personality or narrative structure you really lose that ability um, to harness the beautiful boy archetype. Yeah, you're exactly right. And so much about the beautiful boy is about being able to create that universe. And then when the universe is just thrown at you in this malfunctioning script, it just ruins the effect. And I think it's a good transition into another studio I want to talk about, which is uh, Bella Me, which also features a lot of like these similarly masculine figures, um, but it is in a much different sort of way absolutely like bell ami i think is the premier studio for paying homage to masculinity and beauty well i mean there's another one that i would say also does this but we'll stick to bell ami for now um and the thing is like there's a really really interesting juxtaposition that happens with bell ami because it primarily uses models from the Czech Republic and Hungary, or not Hungary, Hungary, sorry. Um, <laughs> Hungarian models and Czech models. Um, but it places, and like it's, you know, these kind of uh, post-Soviet states or whatever, but they, they do these really, really beautiful, um, well-designed location shoots that take place in these like gorgeous European cities, beautiful flats, Um, A lot of like island paradise villa location settings, which is alienating in a different way. Um, But all of the models tend to be, and they actually do have, I would say, a a bit of range in terms of body type, but they all tend to be very toned, whether it's like a very, you know, lanky, but tight twink or like a big muscular guy, like for example, Chris Evans, who was their their star performer. and yeah, the way that they sell the fantasy of masculinity is different. 
and the fact that I think that it's, it's really catered to the American market. Um, and the fact that even when there is a, a plot or a narrative structure to the film that you're watching, most of the time, the models are actually speaking Hungarian or Czech. So the only way that you have to interpret the narrative is through subtitles. And your ability to detect bad acting and camp in a foreign language is much more limited because you don't know the way the vocal affectations work, right? So it's exactly. much easier for them to sort of put in a narrative structure, but allow you as the viewer to contextualize it in the way that you want um, without it coming across as campy or as cheesy. And I mean, the, the way that they film, um, I think in a lot of ways tends to be more similar to straight porn in the fact that they're very focused on penetration. Like there's a very typical Bellamy shot, um, which is like from underneath with the top penetrating the bottom, right? And he's, the top is looking down and you can see his like very aggressive masculine face sort of like, um, taking the situation and in a lot of these ways, I think it actually comes across as more dominant than a lot of like Dom sub or BDSM porn because it's understated, I guess. Yeah. There's that whole visual motif here of like the penetration, like a lot of the angles that Bellamy films is like the dick going into the ass. And it's like that kind of under angle where you are seeing that and it's very detached from like their faces where you may have like seen their their faces at first and kind of like imagined them in that element but then it kind of abstracts it to just that element of the of the scene yeah and it's it's interesting as well if you look at the vocalizations of bellamy porn because they don't really feature what i call the screaming bottom right so <laughs> The thing, like, the thing is, like, Chris Evans, right? Like, he just, uh, stating facts, he has a huge dick, right? Of course. Um, but in all of his scenes, at the, the, the bottom, it's, it's very breathy, it's moaning. There's a, certain, there's a certain dignity and refinement to the way that it's done that also portrays, I guess, the bottom from a much more masculine perspective as well, which I find um, very intriguing. Um, and yeah, it's yeah, funny. I think you're you're exactly right about like the idea of how bottoming is represented because there's a fine line, like you said, like this <laughs> archetype of this screaming bottom, which sounds like a poly and like a sexual persona. <laughs> yes, it's a new sexual persona. <laughs> <laughs> the screaming bottom, um, but it's also like when you're depicting a bottom and you're showing that and you're casting them as the beautiful boy, there is a border that if you cross it they lose their status as a beautiful boy and they become um an object that is it, it's acting too much like the it's no longer an object and now the the thing is acting itself and that sinks the effect in your ability to produce onto that figure yeah yeah absolutely bottoming the most dangerous territory for defining your identity oh for sure i mean it's the thing that can make or break you as a porn star as we'll touch on later i'm sure oh yes um let's talk a little bit about corbin fisher which i had not been exposed to prior to you introducing me yeah no so corbin fisher i th i think is quite interesting because uh when i was first getting exposed to porn 
um, it was one of the ones that came up. And I, I think one of the things that I was interested in in terms of fantasy is, again, coming from a smaller, more conservative town in California, um, I had this idea that when I got to college, I would finally be free sexually, right? So I was very fascinated by this idea of uh, college, college-themed porn, this idea of like the, the fraternity archetype, all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and Corbin Fisher very much sells the fantasy or tries to sell the fantasy of um, college students, right? So if you go to their website and you want to become a subscriber, if you want to pay money to watch their porn, they, they don't say like join now, subscribe now. They say enroll now, right? So like enrolling mm-hmm. for college. A lot of their video series are called like Dean's List Challenge, very thematically collegiate but it almost feels like uh an abc drama tv show or like the way a high schooler would conceptualize college life um and i think very similarly to men.com uh they focus too much on trying to sell that fantasy in a very overstated and and direct way and it always sort of fell flat for me like even when that was what i was seeking out it wasn't the preferred studio for me to watch um right it's very affected yeah what did you think yeah i thought that of course the models are very beautiful and like i was um I, i could very much see that this is what they try to sell is oh this is like the beautiful dream of college boys and like the fraternity archetype which i think is one of the most predominant gay dreams in the universe and i find that it is so produced in that element and is so bent on trying to create that idea that it it betrays any possibility to like lend yourself onto it and i wrote that it's like it's like very casting couch-esque like It feels very much in that awkward moment of the the actors reconciling with their presence in the video and uh, you having to watch that as a viewer. It's like that, but the entire scenes kind of have that affectation on them. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing that you bring up, right? Because the reality is in a lot of gay porn, um, the actors are gay for pay, right? Like they're, they're straight mm-hmm. men. They're literally just doing this to make money. Um, and studios like Corbin Fisher, Bellamy, a lot of them actually do prefer to cast these types of men, but it's, I think it's interesting. And this is one comparison that I wanted to draw, like between a lot of the models for American porn studios versus for example, Bellamy is the way that the models engage with social media. So Bellamy models for a very long time tended not to really have much of a social media presence. They maintained this aura of mystique, I think largely because they were straight men and they wanted their identities to be protected, right? But again, this allows you to project your desires for who these people are in real life onto them. With a lot of these American studios where the models are more active on social media or you have ways of getting more information about them, it it really doesn't sell the fantasy in the same way. Um, and I think that's, you know, one of the key differences to note as well. Yeah, I completely agree because there's a lot more personality in Western pornography outside of the scene. And this has kind of exploded to the point where now 
young heterosexual and gay men alike, as well as women, are doing the same kind of public performance as a porn star, except with the outlet being into OnlyFans. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I I think it's interesting, right? So, so kind of getting back to the difference between studio, amateur, and OnlyFans, like studio is this sort of full-length feature film production, 30 minutes to sometimes hours long, multiple yeah. scenes, multiple actors, whatever, right? Like studio porn most likely in your life, you will never be a Catholic priest fucking your way through the Vatican. In a Bellamy film, you can live that fantasy, right? Um, amateur porn, as we discussed previously, it really gives you the, the fantasy of the possible, the fantasy of the voyeur, etc. cetera. Only fans, I think, is for the real perverts. Yeah, it's, I think you're exactly right. It's, it's for the people that are deranged enough um, to want to somehow feel involved. Uh, they mm. want to feel a personal connection to the porn actors. They're like so horny for these people that they're willing to pay money just to be able to send them a DM. Um, and yeah, like I'm, I'm generalizing a lot in this respect, but it's because to me, pornography based on social media represents like a death of aesthetic. Um, mm something that's happened recently is you're seeing a lot of these gay for pay only fans boys getting canceled for being Trump supporters or whatever. Right. And for me, I couldn't care less about the politics or personal lives of porn actors besides a select few like Sean Ford famed communist and beautiful boy himself. Um, but I guess in a certain respect, I feel like the internet and liberalism is kind of killing porn. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 a tough. No, you're exactly right. I think it's it's trying to transition pornography and these literal pieces of art, like a framed piece of contained art, and it's trying to warp that into a parasocial relationship that you can have with any Instagram influencer you think has nice tits. Like, whereas like gay porn is like you sit down and can experience like this little dream for a half hour, and like the perversion of OnlyFans leads to these horrible relationships that people build with them and i you know i think maybe a lot of that does come from the way that western porn stars they like, started marketing and selling and kind of corporatizing themselves with personality and now everyone just wants to be able to do the same thing and make two hundred thousand dollars on OnlyFans. so yeah it is I mean, heartless the, the the way that we consume porn has changed so much i mean we never really personally experienced this because we were the in-between generation but before the mainstreaming of gay liberation and gay rights, like gay porn was something that you like secretly bought in like magazine or tape or DVD form at like mm -hmm. the erotic bookstore or the sex shop or whatever, right? Or you went to this like CD movie theater to watch it being actually played live like a film with a bunch of, I don't know, creepy old guys like jerking off in the back row. Um, and I think that OnlyFans, while, you know, has a lot of benefits for the actors, I don't really want to get into, like, the democratization of discourse, porn or whatever. Yeah, me too. Um, or the discourse, but I will just say this. Um, a lot of very talented porn actors that do great in film are not directors, they're not auteurs, and there's a reason why 
most OnlyFans content tends to only be a few minutes long versus studio productions being 30 minutes, an hour, multiple hours long, right? We're seeing a shift in the way this is done and kind of a death of the art form. And now like what I thought were really, really artistic and well thought out films are being condensed into 30 second promo clips that you watch on Twitter, right? It's, it's very sad. Nightmarish. Yeah. I don't even know why anyone would want to be parasocially like attached to their porn stars that they're jerking off to anyway. Like I want them to be as distant from me as possible. Yes. Yes. And like we can get into this more later, but I mean, living in San Diego, right? It's kind of the gay porn capital of the U.S. And San Diego is where I did my bachelor's. So you have, you have a lot of exposure um, to actually gay porn stars. Like I said, my, my old roommate, he was friends with a lot of the Helix Studios boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going out to the gay bars, right? They would do these underwear contests, usually like once a month or whatever. And a lot of the gay for pay, straight porn actors would do performances or like dances to like win, you know, $200 or whatever the prize was. Um, And so you see a lot of these people kind of out at the bars, even the the gay for pay ones, you know, chumming for free drinks or attention or whatever. Um, And you really don't want to meet your heroes. Like they're always, they're always (laughs) hotter in the films, right? When you see them in real life, it's a very depressing experience because none of them really look the same. They're typically older than the videos you remember them from. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's a very haunting experience. And I personally also want to maintain as much distance from these people as possible so I can project my own fantasies and my own desires onto them. I don't want to know their politics. I don't want to know their personal lives. Yeah, exactly. Like, God help me, I do not care about if Colby Keller voted for Trump or not. Like, it does not interest me. Don't give him an advocate column to tell me. I don't need to know. Yeah, exactly. Ugh. Uh, Let's move on to the next studio, uh, which I think kind of actually plays into what we're talking about really well, which is Helix Studios, as you mentioned. Yes. And this, I think, is kind of an excellent hybrid of the fantasy and the narrative production that... um, we've been kind of discussing throughout all of these in that it does suggest a narrative very briefly in these um, very like aesthetically pleasing, like relaxing kind of calm intros. And then it like leads into like wordless fucking for however long. And it's just enough context where you can kind of put in your own fantasy onto these like vaguely established like characters and Mm -hmm. ideas of people and it's a very specific fantasy, too. Unlike the others we've talked about so far, which are, are like, very decidedly masculine or are these, like, men you could never imagine yourself with and are thus watching in porn. But instead, these guys are all very, like, young. They're A lot of them are, like, slender. They look more like regular gay men, and thus they feel more approachable and accessible. Yeah, no, the thing with Helix is, right, it's very, very twink-focused. And you'll notice when you watch their films, you can tell by the vocal affectation, right? And just from from personal experience, from reading some of these people, they're they're actually gay, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of these people come from more conservative towns in the Midwest. Um, They're looking to get out, move to a big city, do something different, right? And and Helix offers them that that escape. Um, And so I think that in that way, they're able to sort of sell this fantasy of the accessible, this fantasy of the reality in a much more authentic way, because these are the kind of guys that you could imagine yourself 
and if you're in San Diego, actually do mm -hmm. meet on Grinder, right? Um, and so I think that's why it feels more believable. And it's funny because I, I have a lot of respect for the aesthetic value of Helix. I think the way that they make porn is very, very artistic. And again, getting into to what you're discussing, right? It's it's not my particular cup of tea because I prefer the fantasy of the guy that could break me in half. You know what I mean? Yeah, likewise. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I, I didn't really, it wasn't what I would actually watch in terms of trying to achieve some sort of pleasure or gratification from watching it. But I do understand what they're doing. And now that I'm getting older, right, I'm about to turn 25, which really isn't that old, but... Um, well, in gay age, it's senior citizenship AARP yeah. level. Like, I, I'm about to turn 25 this year too, and I'm feeling it. Yeah, no, I'm I'm getting close to starting to be able to collect my social security checks. Exactly. <laughs> but no, like as I get older, and like I was, uh, I was looking at some photos last night from from bachelors when I was like 19 years old, right? And I would think I I was probably at the the peak of my beauty and power as like a young gay man. Um, and I think that watching these Helix Studios films evokes a sense of nostalgia. Um, they embody this idea of the beautiful boy, not necessarily in physical form, but at least in your experience as a gay man, you know that when, you, like when you're older, you realize that when you were that age, you wielded and immense amount of power right yeah um, yeah yeah you're so right like the the video has like this like the helix videos have the same kind of emotional texture as when i recall being i think 20 and going to a bathhouse in canada and being the sun when everyone else is darkness like exactly that feeling is something that not everyone gets but most gay men have at least like once or twice in their young lives and this um sort of aesthetic sense that helix has is like that whole realm of sensuality is just like that one moment of beauty i felt it really strongly in the the one i, I linked uh it's yeah. like all of them in like this uh, party setting and then orgy i guess is like it's like the yeah. plot line yeah. but it has like this like soft kind of dulcet lighting and these beautiful like uh light neons and it has like this gorgeous sublimity of like, oh, like this is the moment of beauty. I thought it was actually very artistic. Yeah, it's 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 funny. Like, I my initial impression of Helix was always like, oh, this is gay porn for people that like Taylor Swift. Um, oh my god! <laughs> but no, like when you folklore. Yeah, but the thing is, like, it it has the trappings of like, you know, and again, we were talking earlier about how initially my sexuality was informed by this desire for like love, affection and those kind of things, right? And so I immediately, because of that experience, I, I want to put it into this sort of cheap or cheesy category, but it's not, right? It actually offers so much more. It's selling a much more complex and, and intricate fantasy, right? It's not Taylor Swift. It's actually like St. Vincent, right? So- Exactly. Um, yeah. Well, what a, that's perfect. What a great analogy. Yeah. Mass seduction. Um, and I guess with all of this context that we've established from Helix and Corbin Fisher and Bellamy and Men.com, I think like now we can approach the great titan of gay porn uh, studios. Yes. The, the Sean Cody. Sean Cody, the pinnacle of masculine American pornography. 
Yes, I am glad you agree because even if um, there's just no denying that like this is like where beauty culminates in gay pornography is in Sean Cody. <laughs> absolutely, no, absolutely. Like they, I don't know. It's and it's very very funny because again they also film in San Diego and my bachelor university is set literally across the street from the nude beach they would do a lot of their intro scenes at. So it, it, it's, I have a very interesting personal relationship with this studio because it, it's extremely inaccessible, number one, because they use a lot of gay for pay porn actors that are just extremely beautiful, like not the type of people that you're going to find on like Grindr, Tinder or whatever, right? But there's this weird thing where it somehow feels almost accessible because it's geographically so close to where you are and you physically see these people going out to the gay bars to like drum up publicity and all of that stuff. Very, very Yeah, and this, Sean Cody is obviously very, uh, I have never met a gay man who doesn't at least know a little bit about it, if not having seen many or most of their videos. Like, they are very public and very known, I suppose. Like, they are very, publicity is a good word that you used for them. Like, they are there. Like, you know them. Yeah, I mean, like, it's funny, like, um, not to promo too many of, like, the gay comedians that are out there right now with <laughs> gay comedian with scare quotes around it. Um, but, like, they'll, you know, like, people, people literally wear Sean Cody merchandise, like, Sean Cody tank tops, that kind of stuff, right? They've really done a good job of establishing themselves as a brand, And one of the things that I really like about them is sort of the pattern that they take when they introduce a new model, right? So Mm -hmm. typically when they introduce a new model, they will do a a solo film of the model that has an interview, doesn't really dive too deep, very, very surface level, still allows you to kind of project your fantasies onto this person. Yeah. And then they'll have them start filming with other people there's usually not too much of a plot line. It's usually like one guy saying, oh yeah, he looks hot. Like I really want to film with him, that kind of stuff. Um, Them comparing muscles to figure out who's bigger, right? Those kind of things. Um, They keep it very, very surface level, very aesthetic driven. And I appreciate that in pornography. And I think that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed it so much. Yeah. And any narrative that comes with like Sean Cody is mostly like what you see from the beginning of uh models introduction and then you watch them like develop you they meet other models and like seeing that kind of progression is like the closest thing that there is to the plot lines that we see like in men.com or corbin fisher and i think it's it's much more interesting to kind of make the narrative around personality instead of character yes exactly yeah and obviously all of it is act you know it's acted i I put air quotes up it's performed but there is like an approachable layer of reality where you do kind of feel as if these guys are being authentic and it's hard to detect like where the lie begins or like where the acting starts sometimes. Well, and I think the, the reason why that's so effective is because the people who are doing the writing are smart enough to know not to try to sell this far fetched fantasy. Like a lot Mm -hmm. of the stories that they sell are literally where the models are saying, yeah, like I'm gay for pay, whatever, right? That's a much more accessible thing that these people can identify with than trying to do some other elaborate 
plumber in the kitchen fantasy, right? So yeah. <laughs> you have to really give credit to production for contriving a narrative structure that the actors are able to identify with and sell in a convincing way. Absolutely. And it's so successful that so many of the men who come out of Sean Cody are sort of like pantheonic porn stars, like by the end of their time filming with them. Yeah, no, and, they, they, uh, they, they become deities, right? Like they become almost yes. these godlike figures in the world of gay porn. Um, I haven't met like many people, at least in the States, that don't have like their favorite, you know, Sean Cody performer. Right. And the only problem with creating this kind of deity is that beauty is not a, uh, it is, it's not a physical quality. Beauty is a fleeting and impermeant moment. Oh my God, now you work out. Oh yes, I was like 90 pounds of skin and bones. I was, um, um, I took lifting class and I realized that how good it felt just to throw things around and how good, you know, it's just, it's just nice though. It is nice to build something that you know you're going to be proud of your life. You can always see what you build, you know, hobbies, favorite things. I, I go downtown a lot. Um, my friends have a little fun there. Um, laser tagging, Dave and Busters. I'm a big movie buff. Every aspect meeting people, just being crazy as fuck. I love it more because most of my friends are traders. Um, I want this business. Contemplate on how many lives I've touched, how many people I've made a difference in there now. And the first thing you'll notice after a few sessions with you, I mean, stop it. The beauty of gay porn and the power of it is that it can distill beauty into these moments. Even if it's like malfunctioning, as we've discussed in some of the studios and what have you, I think that overall the, the effect of gay porn are these very unique distillations of beauty. However, the subjects that they use for them do not last forever. I think that one of the greatest case studies for this sort of sensation is the one and only Jeff Cope, who is uh, best known as Brandon, or more recently, Brandon Cody. Absolutely. And it's funny, kind of circling back to how we started, this is one of the times where my education in science and engineering actually informs my view on art and culture. Um, So the topic that I deal with in my research right now is this idea, I mean, in actuality, in real life, right, time is continuous. But when you try to work with time in a digital context or a computer context, you need to break it up into these discrete units, right? Mm-hmm. And um, porn breaks up continuous time into these discrete units, right? A lot of a lot of the films that Bellamy, for example, would release of Chris Evans were filmed years ago, right? I, he mm-hmm. hasn't shot a film, and I think probably three or four years, right? But they have these archive stuff that they keep, they keep releasing. Um, and it's really interesting when you look at Brandon Cody um, or Brandon, because it was also, you know, similar. I think Sean Cody had somewhat of an archive of him built up. And when I started my bachelor's in San Diego, he had already in actuality progressed into his 
flop era as the Twitter game <laughs> classified, right? And so I remember the, the first time seeing him out at the gay bars in Hillcrest, what a horrifying experience it was because I was used to seeing him as literally the archetype of the beautiful boy. I mean, even down to like the initial videos of him with this um, curly hair, which was so characteristic of um, Greco-Roman sculptures of the beautiful boys, right? And when he first appeared in his solo scenes and in the beginning of his career, when he was still really, really young, right? He had this beautiful full head of curly, um, long locked hair, right? And I remember seeing him at Flicks in Hillcrest for the first time. And my initial impressions were, oh my God, he's balding and he's short. (laughs) (laughs) That's the amazing beauty of gay porn is that it can obscure the shortness of these men. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and again, this is kind of getting back in and they talk about this on Red Scare as well. It's like, never meet your heroes. Like, Mm -hmm. Real people are flawed. Real humans that you interact with on a day-to-day basis. The type of people that you are attracted to, want to build relationships with in real life are flawed. And you're willing to accept these kind of flaws because you're understanding that you're working in the basis and framework of reality. And you yourself are flawed. So you need to be willing to compromise in order to find partners, whatever, right? Porn is this one realm where you have the escape of desiring perfection. And I would argue that for a very long time, at least in the beginning of his career and in the canon of films that he was involved with that were produced by Sean Cody, he was the pinnacle of male beauty, masculinity, in the Paulian sense of the beautiful boy. Yeah, it just can't be understated how emblematic of beauty he was when he first started his career. Like, basically every feature is desirable in a way that is so unusual for even high-status porn actors. And when you look at him, you get every sort of facet of that beautiful image, like, from his shoulders and his, like, muscular build to his, like, really, like, soft and unsuspecting boyish face. Mm -hmm. It's, like, that downward look as well. Like, you described his Greco hair, which is so accurate, and his enormous eyes that just uh, are looking like a deer into some soft reality that we have no idea of. And the films that he made with Sean Cody really emphasized and um, functioned on that alone. I mean, in a lot of the scenes when he's meeting his partner, it's just them admiring him for 15 minutes, like worshiping him, like comparing their muscles, as you said. Uh, There's like that iconic gif of someone like finger fucking his chest. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that I, I, loved that film right i forget who the other one was because again he's, he's of course soft. who cares yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no they're like they're comparing muscles right and you know i think one of the interesting fascinations that gay men have with women right is is breasts 
Um, because as a gay man, you really don't have the experience of like titty fucking someone, right? Mm-hmm. And Sean Cody really did something brilliant in that moment where they created that fantasy also for gay men. When, you know, he pushed, like, he flexes his pecs and the guy is like rubbing his finger in between the two. It was extremely erotic, fantastical, absurd. Groundbreaking. In the best way, right? And it's, yes. The, the artistic vision in that moment was beautiful. And like, it's, it's funny because I mean, he had also at that time, like a frankly magnificent ass. Right. And like, Oh yeah. I can't believe I didn't even mention it. Oh my God. His ass was perfect. Um, and it's funny because Paulia, right. She, she mentions in her descriptions of these Greco Roman sculptures, how much emphasis was placed on the buttocks compared to the face, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and with him, it was very much the same. I mean, he had, a, he, had a, he had the perfect face in terms of the beautiful boy in that it was like nicely featured, defined well enough, but not distracting. The focus was on his body, his aesthetics, right? And interestingly enough too, like he, he doesn't have the biggest dick, but that's, mm-hmm. not, that's not the crucial part of the fantasy with him. The fantasy is this idea of, pure, unadulterated beauty. Um, And he embodied that for quite a long time with Sean Cody, up until the point where he started bottoming. I think that's the the key signifier as to when he, when time had progressed a bit too much. Um, Well, because everyone, when these initial videos are coming out, of course, starts projecting every fantasy they have onto him and naturally there's going to be people who want to see him penetrated and so that desire emerges and then was manifested in uh probably one of the most pivotal moments in gay pornographic history was the moment that brandon took a dick inside of him yes yes and it's you know and maybe you know the narrative a bit better because you've done some research into i think the timeline a bit more but that I feel like maybe he took a break from filming for a while. And then when he came back, they're like, all right, if you want to come back, you're going to have to bottom. Right. And he had visibly aged. Um, I remember his first films with Sean Cody, like the solo and then all of the intro films where he was exclusively topping perfectly smooth, hairless, like in terms of body hair, but full head of hair. Um, And then when he came back and started bottoming, there was a shift. All of the hair that he had lost from his head had shifted to his body, right? And I mean, he was still muscular, but not in the same way that he was in the beginning. He very much, I think when he started bottoming, looked like someone who was probably on steroids, those kind of things, right? Yeah. Um, And the fantasy was lost. And it's interesting because me as someone who had projected their fantasies onto him, like when I watched the films of him where he was exclusively topping at the pinnacle of his beauty, I of course desired to see him bottoming, right? I was like, oh, it would be so hot for him to bottom, right? And then when I finally got it, I was like, this is not what I, this is not what I asked for. Yeah, it's like this vicious climax to his cycle where everyone is anticipating it. And then when it actually happens, it's tragic, actually. And it's very reminiscent of death and pain. It's like the object when you see it, actually, because even though it is like this fantasy that had been so prevalent for so many people, when it actually 
happens. It's like that moment in The Piano Teacher when Erica finally gets beat up and she realizes she didn't want it after all. Her fascinations had grown out of control. Yeah, when it turns out your fantasy of being sex murdered um, should just remain a fantasy. Yeah, Uh, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I I think it, it fits again beautifully with this Hollyan view of gay pornography and that these moments that you have are fleeting. And I think we as gay men, we, we realize that so much, right? We realize that your power, your sexual capital is in a large extent limited. You have a window when you can survive solely on your beauty. After that window passes, you need to be concerned about, okay, like, Do I have a good job? Do I have a good personality? Am I financially stable? Do I have something else to offer, right? It it gets into this realm of the qualities that you desire in a romantic partner versus the qualities that you desire in a porn star. Um, And it's, I feel bad for him in a certain sense because I think with a lot of people who didn't achieve that level of fame and interest, when their window passes, it's easier for them to transition into something else. I think a, the extreme amount of publicity that he got would have made it really difficult for him to ever work a regular job, so to speak. Um, and I just don't think it aligns with his interests, right? Like he became like a personal fitness trainer for a while, I think. And I think that's what he's doing now, right? Yeah. So the tragic fallout from this bottoming era onward is he goes to a different porn studio under the name Brandon Cody um, because he has to associate with Sean Cody to like keep his uh, image. And he is very visibly not enjoying the work. He looks tired and beaten up from that point on. And even after working with that studio, then he goes on to merely uploading videos onto Pornhub for free. This is so and tragic. So it's so very tragic. dark. Yeah. And the, the videos are all really dismaying. It's like aesthetically offensive. Like oh there's God. one where he, he's bondaged himself up. Yeah. I don't know if he, he like has taped his mouth shut and is like jerking off. And it is just so dismaying. And it really gets into like the this idea of succumbing to this is the problem with having a public persona and engaging with the public you become a victim of what your fans desire right and because porn is not recognized in art in the same way that film and television is right there's this perceived need to engage with your audience in a more significant way and to please the people um And that, I know the video you're talking about, and that was very sad, but to me, I think the most emasculating video that I saw of him was the one that he uploaded where he was fucking his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. She's on hold with an airline literally the entire time of the video. The video starts and there's this weird music playing in the background. What the fuck is this? And then you get like, 50 to 75% through this like quite long video. And he's just going at it, like really giving it to her, right? And she's moaning, she's screaming, she's doing the whole bit. Um, And all of a sudden the music stops 
and the representative from the airline gets on the phone and she deadpan stops moaning, stops screaming, whatever. And he's, he's still going, he's still going at it just as hard as he was before. And she's having a normal conversation on the phone with this airline representative. And I can't even imagine how emasculating of an experience that must have been for him. Yeah. And I mean, it is the most plain conversation about making sure that a flight has been rescheduled. It is confirming the email address. Yeah. Yeah. Literally confirming the email address. And it's not something that was edited out of the video. It was willfully shown. Like it was uploaded and shown. And now tens of thousands of, of people have seen Brandon Cody in his state of fallen grace as his girlfriend makes flight plans on the phone with like some like Indian like flight representative. Yeah. No, and, and the thing is, right, like it also kind of speaks again to this cult of personality that is generated by this idea of the beautiful boy because he knows his name recognition is so high, he can put something as pathetic and disgraceful as that particular video out and he'll still make money and people will still continue to be interested and watch him. And like, this is the failure of the gay audience to not be more discerning, but like Mm -hmm. (laughs) different discussion. Yeah. (laughs) But no, I just, I thought it was so shocking and horrible because I hadn't actually seen that video until you sent it to me when we were discussing the episode. Um, And it was horrifying to see someone who was once this like pinnacle of my conceptualization of masculinity and what a porn star should be reduced to this sort of like cuckolded, uh, little manlet right and combining that experience (laughs) that i had of seeing him in real life where i realized okay he actually is kind of a manlet um yeah no it was just a really really sad experience and i don't like remembering him that way i prefer to remember him in his prime right i guess i think that's kind of one of the cool things about um sculpture as an art form in terms of discretizing time right they're able to preserve you at your peak for forever. Um, And one of the quotes that I actually liked from Sexual Persona is when she was talking about how there was like 300 years of Greek sculpture focusing on the beautiful boy and we know none of their names, right? As soon as you start to become interested in these people as real human beings, you realize that all of these things are fleeting temporal moments They're regular humans, just like the rest of us. They get old, they get fat, they lose their hair, all of these things, right? And and these are all of the facets of aging that we as gay men often try to avoid. Um, you're, You're really confronted by it with them. You're exactly right. And I think the verb you chose to be cuckolded is absolutely correct because he has effectively sold his soul and his dignity and the former aestheticism of which he possessed for this very dark-sided um and heartbreaking cuckoldry to the voyeur of the audience who will basically just continue to watch him further de 
demasculize and emasculate himself uh, because there is like a thrill in that part as well. So even if people aren't watching anymore because they're they find it aesthetically appealing or erotic, like they'll probably keep watching just to see where his narrative continues. And that is ultimately like one of the failures of putting your identity at the center of your art or your image because eventually like like you said you have to give it over and it just uh is going to go nowhere good yeah and like i think that's one of the problems with um studio actors doing amateur stuff right i would argue that like though obviously they were working to do something to have something on the camera for people to see to make money um that to me felt much more like a private sexual interaction. I think that's probably how they would have had sex off camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe even in that context, right? I think if I imagine myself in that position, if I knew no one was watching and I'm having sex with my like boyfriend um, and you know, one of us is on hold with the airline company and like trying to do that call while having sex without it being noticeable, I think that could actually be very hot in a private context, right? But there's some absolutely yeah public aspect of it that's so shameful. Which again, like, and again, shame is a big fetish, um, and there's something wrong with that. But it's just so contrary to what he was selling when he was a studio actor, and it's I don't know. I find it like horrifying. I think there's no other word to describe it besides horrifying. <laughs> Yeah, like, the whole video is basically, like, a slow, like, take-for-take destruction of every single thing that he used to be able and capable of doing in his days with Sean Cody, where it's, like, the tragic background music in the phone call. It's the kind of, like, lifeless, like, uninterested fucking. It's the woman acting and then seeing her acting charade come immediately crashing down once the phone is answered. And it's this terrible golden orange lighting whereas like sean cody used to cast them in these beautifully sunlit rooms um where every single pore was obliterated and here it's like this room that reeks like through the screen in this orange lighting yeah no and like it's you you see you know because again like porn and whether or not this is related to how the studio industry works, whatever, we don't care. We're more like, we're merely focused on the aesthetics in this conversation, right? They're in some rinky dink, nasty hotel room on the phone with either Iceland air or Norwegian air or SA, some, budget, <laughs> yeah. some budget airline, right? <laughs> and, and the most infuriating thing is that the customer service of this airline is so bad that they're on hold for like literally 30 minutes before the person picks up to clarify the details, right? So it's, <laughs> and, and, and this is an experience that I think that, you know, I'm familiar with being a young person who likes to travel and tries to be budget friendly from time to time, right? So you know what, this, it's just, it was too real, that experience. It was, you could place yourself in it, I think, a bit too well, whether it's a bad grinder hookup where you're not really that into it or having to deal with a shitty airline situation or all of these things. Um, it just really takes away the fantasy of who he is and what he represented to me as like a young person who was watching his films for you know, basically as long as I was watching gay porn. Exactly. So I think at this point, like the only 
thing that can be done for gay pornography is to desperately avoid the cult of personality at all costs and to leave your art as art without having to inflect your personality into it. Yeah, it's just, I think it's, I really feel for these people um, in terms of having to market themselves. So much of our lives are online, like, and, and the culture that we live in now, we, we demand so much of artists. It's no longer sufficient to just produce good art. You need to be a role model, right? People want to see your personality. People want to know so much about you. And maybe it's because, you know, the way our relationships to other human beings are, are changing. A lot of it's becoming very parasocial um, as acted out through Twitter and Instagram and all these different spaces. Um, but it, it really takes away from the fantasy of being able to project exactly what you desire on these pinnacles of aesthetic masculine beauty. Um, and I think it's a huge loss for gay culture. I think it's a huge loss for society in general, the way that we are forcing artists to be something besides just artists. We're sorry. You have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service.